You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. I would like to uh, first thank the Literature House of Oslo, uh, my publishers here, and more importantly, all the people who are here today. Thank you very much. Um, my lecture today is called My Brother, a Manifesto for the Working Class. Fact number one. My brother died six months ago. He was 38 years old. One evening, he was found on the floor of his apartment, lying in his own vomit and his own excrement. His body had collapsed. A few months before, his kidney had started to shut down because of the alcohol he had been drinking for years, the alcohol that the life he had compelled him to drink. What are we, if not a function of our lives? Then his liver followed, working at 70% of its capacity, then 50%, then 30%. Doctors told him that he should stop drinking, but he could not. The day he died, his heart stopped out of exhaustion, and his body was not strong enough to resist this attack. Everything inside him was broken. My mother called me, crying. My baby is dead. My baby is dead. I listened to her, and I felt for her. But I wasn't sad. I didn't love my brother. Fact number two. My brother had never been a good person. In my first memories of him, he steals chocolates from my father and forces me to tell my parents that I did the deed. He threatens me, if you don't do what I command, I will destroy your little face. My parents are in the living room, watching TV. I walk from where I am to where they are, from my bedroom to the living room, and I whisper, my face covered with tears, tears of injustice, tears of my inability to understand why I should suffer from something I didn't do. I whisper, it was me. I stole the chocolate. My father stands up. He comes closer and he slaps me. When I return to the bedroom, my brother is watching his favorite TV show. He doesn't care doesn't pay attention to the tears streaming down my cheeks, doesn't pay attention to the red mark my father just left on my face. Later on in his life, my brother became a violent person. He hit my father one day and left him half dead on the floor, paralyzed for several weeks. Years later, he swore that he was on his way to Paris to kill me with a baseball bat after I published my first novel and I had to hide for several days in a hotel 
far from my apartment. He would often tell me that gay people deserved a brutal death and should be raped with metal stick as a punishment. He said black people were intellectually inferior to white ones. For years, he was beating women he was living with, making bruises proliferate around their eyes, and he was also beating his dog, leaving the little animal unable to walk properly, his tiny sad black eyes becoming the mirror of my brother's madness. My brother was not a good person, and yet I want to understand him. I want to understand why he became that being. In the last decades, the political field has become more and more a place where love and politics are confused and intertwined. The LGBT movement, the queer movement, the feminist or the anti-racist movement became places where standing for a group or for a community is largely a synonym of expressing love for this group. Everywhere, in demonstrations, in manifestos, in political essays, a sentimental language is flourishing within the political struggle. Women are beautiful, women are strong, queer people are fabulous, gay people are heroes, I love my Muslim neighbors. Without even considering the naive, if not childish, or just the overwhelmingly mainstream aspect of those slogans, it is no longer possible to ignore the fact that such an approach to political reality sets a problem. If politics is conditioned by love, then what happens to those who are crushed so heavily by our societies, by classism, by racism, by masculine domination, that they are no longer able to behave in a way that makes them lovable? Don't they deserve our intention precisely because their behavior reflects the world around them and consequently demands that we make an effort to change the substance of this world? If politics is conditioned by love, then what happened to people like my brother who was hitting humans and animals around him? What happens to the humiliated crowds all around the world who, in the seclusion of the voting booth, vote for far-right candidates in order to take an ugly revenge against what is being done to them or against their interpretation of what is being done to them? What happens to a religious man who is so devastated by precariousness or isolation that he, little by little, grows violent and one day runs into a bar or into a crowd to stab or to shoot people? If progressive politics is conditioned by love, then those people are labeled as monsters and the political field is not trying to fix the problem that made them possible. And the problem inevitably occurs again and again. I repeat myself, I didn't like my brother, but maybe his death and his personal story can become a pretext to flip the mainstream script that dictates the current states of politics. Maybe the individuals who are the least lovable are the most deserving of our understanding because most of the time their violence is nothing but the continuation of the violence that surrounds them, a complex, 
multi-layered violence that surrenders no easy solution. What do we stand for if what we defend is already defensible? I defend not my brother, but the story of my brother, because it is not defensible. I am building a burial place to a brother that my society refuses to bury. I am trying to understand a man I detested. Fact number three. Three things before going on. Number one, I know that, of course, violence can be caused by other things than exclusion or domination. That's why there is violence in the dominant class, for example. This is another kind of violence that deserves another type of analysis that we won't talk about today. Number two, stating that violent persons should be also included in the political process of understanding does not mean that the perpetrators are more victims than the victims, of course. Victims of violence deserve our political energy first, and that's why I wrote books about homophobia or masculinity in my previous book. I am trying today to question the line between the defensible and the non-defensible. The last query before moving forward is that there is obviously no such thing as an automatic link between suffering and being violent. It is a sociological possibility, not a mechanical consequence. I knew in my life many people who were seriously affected by social violence and who never turned violent like my brother did. There were many. But their capacity to remain good despite the situation is, in my view, heroic, and I am not interested by heroes. This manifesto will be for the losers, for the ones who failed to resist the violence their bodies were accumulating. Fact number four, my brother. Shortly after he passed away, I began to wonder what happened in his life and in his trajectory to lead to this premature death. Why and how did his existence turn into a field of destruction, screaming, collapsing, when most people in our milieu walked a more predictable path through life? Childhood in poverty, exclusion and auto-exclusion from the school system at 16 or 70, a job at the factory, at McDonald's or at the Amazon warehouse, then early parenthood, hours every day in front of the television or in front of the phone, a life of quiet invisibility and whispered sadness before a silent and early disappearance around the age of 60. The question I had pulsating in my mind was quite simple. Why did my brother, who grew up in the same family as my other brothers and sisters, with the same parents, in the same house, at the same time, in the same region, why did he end up so differently? When did this sneak inside his flesh appear? And how did it fester? Fact number five. The story of my brother starts with a disappearance. One day he vanished. No one could have guessed what was going to happen. He was a silent, quiet child. He was not good at school. Like everyone else in our family, he was not fit for the educational system, but he was not a turbulent and violent boy 
contrary to the toughest boys in the village. My mother tells me he was a very kind boy, much kinder than you were. <laughs> but one afternoon, when he was 16, he left the house to spend some time with a friend and he never came back. After a few days, he called my mother and told her it was over. He would not return home. He said he didn't feel loved enough, that he hated his family, that no one was trying to figure out who he was, but his friends did. They did. My mother did not understand. She hung up the phone, eyes wide open, and she said, but what is going on with him? What is he talking about? It was the first time, the first evidence of his wound. Fact number six, one day he came back. He was young, 18 years old, but he had been already gone for more than a year. And when he reappeared, he had almost become a stranger to us. He was there, standing next to the door, and we waited. He said, I did it. I found something. We didn't know what he was talking about. He said again, I did it. And at this very moment, he showed us a piece of paper he was holding in his hand, a semi-plasticized sheet of paper with scribbles on it, the one that I used to wrap pieces of meat. He explained to us that two weeks before, he went to a butcher in the city and that he talked to the boss. The boss told him he was looking for a trainee, and when he saw him, my brother, he loved him. My brother was swearing. The boss immediately loved him and asked him if he wanted to become his apprentice. It was important for my brother to emphasize this aspect, to make my parents understand that people loved him, that he was worthy of love. My brother went on. The boss was going to train him and to make him a butcher, and one day he was going to be his assistant. My brother was swearing, I swear, I swear. He would become an assistant, but it would be only a stepping stone, not the end of the story, because later on, the boss would hand over the ownership of the butchery to my brother. He would belong to him. My brother would become the boss of the place, and maybe one day he would become best butcher of the country, a very important award given every year to someone. My brother was explaining to us that the boss told him he felt a very specific and solar energy emanating from my brother. He was sure my brother would go far and one day he would be rich and important people from different parts of the country would come to this butchery to buy the best pieces of dead animals. He wouldn't be a regular butcher, no. He was going to be big. My brother had never been able to dream modestly. He never had the ambitions that people around us would have of owning a little family house, a fancy sports car, a travel in the tropics. No, my brother was only capable of dreaming big. And sometimes I wonder if he didn't die from the dimension of his dreams. After his long monologue, my brother made a pause he waited, but nothing happened. I was 10 years old and I was watching him, his stiff body, his big brown eyes. And suddenly, shattering the silence, my father burst out laughing. 
so loudly and said, are you kidding? Do you think I will believe your nonsense? Do you think a piece of paper is a fucking work contract? Do you think I'm going to believe a loser like you? Get out of my sight. I don't remember if my brother cried or said anything. I don't think he did. He disappeared, and one hour later, he called my mother. He told her he was lying on the railway tracks nearby. He was waiting for the next train to rip off his body. He wanted to die. Couldn't she hear the silence of the countryside around him? He probably thought he would find solace in her. She was usually less tough than my father, but when he spoke, she repeated all of his sentences to my father, like in a game of Chinese whispers, and they were both laughing. They were saying, ha, and now a suicide. We will experience everything with that one. Enjoy, bye. And they hung up the phone. Years after that scene, on the few occasions I was talking to him, my brother would tell me that what happened that day enlarged the wound inside him, that wound which was, I don't believe I'm wrong, at the core of his life. Fact number seven. We thought that oppression would create anger and revolt. But what if oppression rather creates sadness? For every day of revolt, like May 68, or the Front Populaire, or the French Revolution, how many days of tears? What would it mean to make the history of the working class not as a natural history of a revolution to come, but as a history of melancholia and desperation? How could we elaborate a change through a history of sadness? Fact number eight. After the scene with the paper and the butcher, my brother disappeared again. He went to live in several different little towns of northern France, taking one menial job after another, mostly as a construction worker. He was living in a 17 square meter studio attached to a garage, a space that was once used to store tools, now turned into a tiny studio with a constant smell of oil in the air. Whenever I paid him a visit, I could see he was drinking more and more alcohol, something he had started a few years before, when he disappeared and went to live with his friends. Fact number nine. My brother was a man, and therefore had power over the women he was living with throughout his life. More than power, he turned his masculine status into a right over women's bodies. One night, his girlfriend called us to warn my parents she had contacted the police. My brother was beating her when he was drunk. She told us she was capable of handling it, but now he was trying to hit her kids. She told us, I can deal with a man beating me, but not my kids. My brother was heterosexual and violently homophobic. I remember being 14 or 15 years old every day trying to hide my desire for other boys and men, while my brother was quietly explaining to me that gay people were the most repulsive things, that he didn't understand why the state was no longer punishing them, like in the good old times. My brother was a white, French man, and obsessively racist. 
He was voting for the right and the far right. He was always complaining about black and brown people who were, according to him, robbing our country. My brother was, according to the current mainstream language of politics, a straight white man. But paradoxically, this dominant status, which was a real privilege for him, also became the reason of his premature death at 38 years old, because many white men in the north of France drink alcohol and die young. Because as a man, he was all his life, and in order to perform his masculinity, performing violent acts, dangerous things, refusing to see doctors, refusing to take care of himself, the idea of care being associated with all things feminine. In my family, paradoxically, but out of a logical paradox, it is me, the gay child, and my mother and my sisters who managed the most clearly to flee from the brutal fate that awaited my brother. We know sociologically that within the working class, women are much more likely to obtain educational qualifications than men or that they live likely much longer. And yet, every day, or every other day in France, a woman dies, killed by a man. And yet, during my whole childhood, I wanted to kill myself because of homophobic speeches like my brother's. And yet, my brother never encountered police violence like young black and Arabs do in France. I'm not trying to assert that privileges or power are worse than oppression or domination. I am stating, rather, that they can be the two dialectic moments of the same phenomena. What would it mean to keep both analyses in the same political approach? What would it mean to reject both the old reactionary vision of the political struggle, pretending that someone like my brother is the only legitimate body the left should fight for because he's not gay or because he's not a woman, and therefore, because it fits the old representation of what is a working class, like in the bad books of Gide Evans or Flockstadt, what would it mean to reject both this reactionary framing of the working class, but to reject at the same time the new mainstream discourse, ignoring a body and a story like my brother's one because of the privileges he carried? What would be the third way? If, like Bernardine Evaristo puts it, every life contains its own manifesto, the life and death of my brother asserts this. Domination is not a picture, but a process. Domination is not static, but dynamic. Violence is not a property, but a flow. The things that give you power one day can be the same things that destroy you another day. You don't understand the world with static categories such as straight or white or cisgender or man, but you understand the world with dynamic categories, mobile ones, the ones that echo the dialectic of domination, such as masculine violence, masculine domination, racism, police violence, homophobia. Perhaps the death of my brother could be an opportunity to rethink the political language of our present. Fact number 10, another dream. 
after one and a half years of shuttling between menial work and brushes with the justice system, my brother came back home again. He knocked the door like a ghost, entered the living room, and there he was, standing in front of us. You have to imagine the smell of wood inside the house, the deep call coming from the outside when my brother opened the door. The scene was disturbingly similar to the one with the butcher's wrapping paper. My brother told us he had a new idea. He was going to become a comrade of the duty. I didn't know what that meant. I suspect my parents didn't know either, so my brother explained to us. The comrades of duty were and are a group of men who fix and repair the major historical monuments, not only in France, but abroad, all over Europe. My brother was insisting, what they do is not akin to being a construction worker. No, it is not a casual job like that. My brother was telling us that their work was to make history possible. I remember, he told us that without the comrade of duty, there would be no history, no past, no heart, no beauty. Without them, the Cathedral of Amiens would no longer exist. Notre Dame de Paris would no longer exist. And we had to be prepared. We would not see him for a long time. Because if he was going to become a comrade, he would be traveling a lot all over Europe in countries we didn't even know, cold countries with dark, deep forests, warm countries with food we couldn't even imagine. We had to get ready. We wouldn't see him anymore. His job would be so important, and like many, any important job, it required a certain sense of sacrifice. My brother paused. He was waiting for an answer, so my father spoke. He asked my brother how he would get money to start his apprenticeship, how he would do. He told him that he was not serious enough to start such a thing. He never studied seriously. He already had a problem with the justice system. He was drinking. He told my brother that he should go back to school, and then we could discuss the comrade of the duty thing. And in a way, I understand his answer. It would have cost my parents money, which they didn't have. They would have been forced to take a loan with one of those loan companies for working class people, the kind of companies that give you an easy loan that then you have to repay with absurdly gigantic interest. And I understand that my father was afraid to lose this money. Tears appeared in my brother's eyes, but they were not tears of sadness. They were tears of rage. My brother said that he hated school. He didn't want to study. He said that anyway, it was too late. He had already applied to the comrades. He and his best friend Paul were going to do it together. And Paul's mother had filled up the form for both of them. It was already sent. It was already done. And it's at this very moment that my father started to scream. He interrupted my brother. What did you say? His anger was filling the room, forcing our bodies against the wall. And he said, did you ask Paul's mother to do it for you? Don't you have a mother? Why did you ask your mother? Her mother and not yours. Do you want the whole village to say that your mother is unable to take care of the kids? 
And I have to say it, I was only 12 years old when I witnessed this scene, but I have to say it, already I felt the injustice and the absurdity of what my father was saying. How could he blame my brother for looking for other parents when they, our parents, were constantly acting like they were not related to us? That's the definition of family. First, they chase you away, then they blame you if you leave. My brother kept going, but the more he insisted, the tougher my father became. He said my brother was too unstable, that it was out of question, he would not become a comrade, and if needed, my father said he would tie him to the bed with leather belts so he could not go. And of course, sometimes I wonder. I wonder if my father had more money, it would have not been a big deal to let my brother begin the training to become a comrade, even if he didn't trust my brother. I saw it. In the dominant class, some kids left school too early like my brother did. Some kids messed up like my brother did. Some kids drink like my brother did. But then the parents paid for an excessively expensive second-class theater school, or a ridiculously expensive second-rate cinema school, or a cooking school, just to guide them back on track. And sometimes they failed. But here is the difference. My brother didn't even have an opportunity to fail. And sometimes I think that class violence is also this, the unequal access to the very possibility of failure. I wonder if I'm a brother had started the training to become a comrade of the duty, maybe his life would have taken a different trajectory and maybe he would have been happier and maybe he would have drank less alcohol and maybe he would not be dead at 38. Who knows? After a few minutes of dispute, my brother surrendered. He left the house and a few weeks later, his best friend Paul started the training to become a comrade, but not my brother, not him. Fact number 11. The question of the access to failure is today at the center of the political discourse. A few months ago, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, made a statement saying that too many students were failing at university and that university was costing the state too much because of the failure rate. He said that a university system that had no cost for students was not sustainable. What does that mean? Shutting down opportunities based on the statistic of failure is inexorably closing the doors to beings who are more likely to fail, mostly because they are unprepared. And what is being prepared what is preparation in the school context, if not the compatibility with the education system as it was sociologically and historically built, which is, as Pierre Bourdieu showed, a class skill. The same Emmanuel Macron declared once that some kids should be able to start a professional training as early as possible because he said some kids are not fit to study. Because they fail studying, they should work with their hands. Classicism is also a war at the possibility of failing. Perhaps the progressivism of an institution should be measured to its capacity to produce and engender failures. Fact number 12. 
after he failed to become a comrade of the duty, my brother's life became darker. He moved to Amiens, the largest city in the region, where he was drinking more and more alcohol. All the girlfriends he had during this time told me the same thing when I called them after his death. They all described the same scene to me. Every night, at a certain time, around midnight, my brother would put music, sad music on the television, very loud, and he was watching the void in front of him, staring into space. He often had arguments with them because those women needed to go to sleep. They were tired. They all had exhausting jobs, cleaning women, cashiers, nanny. They would ask him to stop the music so they could sleep, but my brother didn't listen. He would drink, the music enveloping him, and he would say that his life was unfair, that his parents had been unfair with him, that he deserved a better life. He was repeating those sentences several times, addressing the void in front of him, the invisible space between him and the television producing video clips from the song he listened to. Until the moment, his sadness turned into anger. Then he started screaming. Then he started being violent. In one of his most beautiful essays, Mourning and Melancholia, Sigmund Freud suggests that the difference between those two emotional states is that melancholia is the depreciation of oneself by himself. The disgust for his own existence, whereas the mourning is the depreciation of the world that surrounds the subject, the breaking of the link between an individual and the society around him. If my brother was constantly expressing his disgust for the world around him and was cutting gradually his ties with the exterior world without ever depreciating himself, if the problem was in his mind, not him, but the world around him, then my brother was not melancholic. He was mourning. So I asked myself, what was this thing he was mourning? Fact number 13, when my mother called me crying to announce his death, I immediately knew I was going to write about it. I spontaneously thought that I was going to write the story of someone who had been struck and crushed by social determinism in such a violent way that he was killed by it in his 30s. But then, reconstructing his life, I understood it was something different. What if my brother died at 38, not only because of social determinism, but because of a defeat in the normal functioning of social determinism? Here is what I think. In the milieu of my childhood, most people were hardly questioning their life. Their social conditions of life were framing their minds, their dreams, their hopes. The violence of social determinism laid also in its shaping of their desire, having a minor promotion at the factory, getting a bigger television, getting a loan for a new car. If the dreams of my brother were so vast and so maladjusted to his existence and were plunging him into this dark despair that eventually became the substance of his life, then 
social determinism failed to frame his dream. It failed to accomplish its meaning and mission. Or rather, it accomplished only half of it, the poverty, the isolation, the alcohol. Maybe that thing that my brother was mourning, in Freudian terms, was the life he thought he deserved, but never had. Fact number 14. When he discovered my homosexuality, he said he would beat me until I become heterosexual. When in France, we thought that a woman would become the first female president, he entered a state of paranoia, as if he was personally threatened. He would say again and again, our country will die if we have a woman as president. One day, he told me a gay man stared at him in the street and my brother had beaten him up. I hated him. And yet, I need to understand. Fact number 15. My brother had one more dream before he collapsed. He became friend with the owner of a construction company. And after a few months of friendship, the boss decided my brother would become his successor. I checked. He didn't lie. It was true. The man owned 15 apartments. He was buying them, renovating them with his company, and then he was renting them. And he wanted my brother to work with him. And he said to my brother that one day he would inherit everything. But it was too late. My brother was already destroyed. He would arrive at work two hours late, stinking of filth and fermented beer. He would miss entire days on the work site, mumbling absurd excuses to the boss on the phone. At this time, I was 16, and he was 25. I was trying to avoid him, but sometimes he insisted on meeting, and I surrendered. I saw him, always with a large beer in his hands, always coming back from a sexual hookup with a woman he found online, always with a lottery ticket in his hand. Those became two addictions for him. Addiction substitute to reality the things we are addicted to. My brother had 20, 30 euros only on his bank account, and he would spend everything on lottery tickets and lose everything. I watched him standing in the street, scratching the surface of those tickets with, in his eyes, a mixture of hope and fear. He would insist on having me sleep at his place, saying to my mother that he needed to see his little brother, that he missed me, and when I did so, when I would arrive in his tiny studio one or two times a year, he would barely talk to me, his eyes on the screen of his phone, trying to find women online to have sex with. He would suddenly stand up, take his coat, tell me to eat everything I wanted from the fridge, and he disappeared until the next day. Some people might see a disease in these addictions. I don't. I am glad my brother had those moments of suspension from the life he hated with games and with sexual adventures. I am glad he found a way to escape, even for a few minutes, even for a few seconds. Fact number 16. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with a movie called The Matrix, in which a man understood something was wrong in the world. He understood this world was wrong precisely because it had failed to frame his mind 
and to standardize him. Therefore, this man becomes a revolutionary subject. My brother did not. Fact number 17. At some point, it became impossible to see him. He was too drunk all the time. Alcohol would never leave his body. And when he was waking up, he was already intoxicated by alcohol before starting to drink. He was 28 years old. I stopped paying visit to him and he disappeared from my life for 10 years. Sometimes my mother would try hard. She would make attempt to convince me to see him again, but I didn't want to. I refused until the phone call from her to tell me he was dead. When she did so, I felt nothing for him. I was not sad. The only thing I felt was anger. Anger against all the people who are constantly trying to diminish the importance of social violence. The years before my brother died, I had published books about my father, about my mother, about the working class milieu in which I grew up. Every time I had published a book, I was suspected of exaggerating the weight of social domination. I was suspected of lying. When my brother died, I was angry because I came to realize that all those voices which try to erase any attempt to talk about poverty and domination are part of the reason why my brother died, because those voices telling you that you lie, telling you that you exaggerate, make it impossible to deal with social violence. When my brother died, I promised myself I would tell his story to force people to confront what they try to avoid and erase, because a death at 38 is indisputable. I promised myself I would tell his story in order to make some people suffer, suffer from the consequence of the silence they create. What would it be to substitute dead bodies to the abstract concepts and notions of politics in order to force people around us to look at reality because the death of a body is objective, material, palpable, and therefore unescapable. What would it mean to write a manifesto for the working class in the shape of a body? Here is the dead body of my brother in the shape of a political manifesto for the working class. Please look at it. Please listen to it. And if you listen carefully, I promise you might be crossed by a feeling of unease. And what I'm asking you today is to turn those bad feelings into a will to change what is around you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.